Welcome to the Congress of Forms podcast. This is your host, Christy Wampole. Can't help about the shape I'm in. I can't sing. I ain't pretty and my legs are thin. But don't ask me what I think of you. I might not get the answer that you want me to. For this second installment on the theme of America, I have a very special guest, someone I believe to be an expert on the United States in her own lyrical way. Her name is Diane Cluck. She's a musician, often considered one of the most important voices of our time in the alternative folk music scene. She calls her style of music intuitive folk. I can think of no better adjective to describe it. Whether they name it or not, most of her songs are about America especially about its landscapes and weather and seasons, about its flavors and sounds, its flora and fauna, and how all of these play on the minds and hearts of people who live there. I truly believe her music could only have come from here. Cars, three-point turns, make pentagrams and Kicked around the cul-de-sac 
by those who go and double back as if there is no thoroughfare in absence of a beaten track and the red ants are moving with their sick and withered comrades they carry the bodies of the withered in their mouths because it is no big deal hey what else is there to do but set your sight on something and pull your tangles through oh i would have gone crooked but for you but for I saw her play live for the first time back in 2009 at The Independent in San Francisco. We sat on the floor in a black room and watched her up on stage in awe. Then I heard her again two times this September, once at the Outer Space in Hamden, Connecticut, and again at the Montague Book Mill in Montague, Massachusetts. And if you've never been there, it's a really incredible place. It's an actual grain mill nestled at the edge of a cascading river, and it's been converted into a used bookstore with several floors. The motto of the store is, books you don't need and a place you can't find. The settings for her shows tend to be small and intimate, which best suits the quiet singularity of her voice. She has a very slight figure, almost apparition-like. And when she picks up any of the many string and percussion instruments she plays, she does so carefully and with a kind of lightness. She built one of the instruments, a xylophone-like instrument made of copper pipes, with her father. She plays other instruments I can't identify, perhaps a concertina, a zither. And for one song, she ties bells to both ankles. Before her show at the book mill, she agreed to meet me and talk with me about America. We sat near the river on a stone wall, and I asked her questions as bats flew overhead in the September dusk and a chipmunk ran along the wall. In our conversation, I mentioned that the word country can mean at least two things. It can mean the landscape and perhaps what is opposed to the city, 
For example, when someone says, I'm going out to the country. But it also means the idea of the nation. To die for one's country is not to die just for the land, but to die for the ideas, values, and institutions it represents. This conflation of nature and culture that happens through the word country is fascinating to me. I wonder about it every time I look at a map, and I recognize it for the abstraction that it is. When I'm standing in a landscape and I try to find my way on a map, I'm forcing the land to exist for me as an abstraction. The countryside is sidelined by the idea of it. In addition to this problem, I often wonder about the problem of roots. In fact, I've just finished writing a book about the metaphor of rootedness. Why do we consider ourselves to be rooted beings even though we aren't trees? What binds a person to a nation? Is it the country as a landscape, the country as a political abstraction, or both? I spoke with Diane about this. Do you think of yourself as a rooted person? Does that metaphor make any sense to you? I have had a lot of struggles with that over the past few years because I have moved a lot and the moves have been sometimes whimsical, sometimes based on a feeling about a region, sometimes based on uh, exhaustion of leaving New York City and being sort of priced out of there, uh, not really connecting with the culture in my home state or like the, the region of Pennsylvania where I grew up in, though having like a rooted feeling there. Uh, so I have been going through that feeling of being rootless and because I took on that idea it, it sort of created a pain but the more I'm playing music and also just settling into the present with who I'm dealing with which is really all we really have. Um, you know things happen to us all the time and you can set up your house and you can set up your family and it's no guarantee of roots really. So I've been learning to uh, carry a grounded feeling, then maybe it's not roots, maybe it's just more of a, a feeling of presence um, and not struggling so much against that I don't have a physically rooted place in the world right now. Um, but something that you were saying about, the first thing you asked me about country, there's another song where I use the word um, country, but in my head, the more I sang it, it started coming apart as country. And to me, it was it was like uh, like the land that we're born from, just by being human beings and bodies that we always have. It's it's not it's not a, that you have it or you don't. Just by being born, you are part of a cunt tree. You are born out of a woman and her body. Man friends and woman friends and dog friends and plant friends love me if you do, cause I make love to you. Old friends and new friends and children friends and killer friends Love me if you do, as I make love to you I'll harm you not, scorn you not, scar you not, no Friends, wine, friends.
to talk, I told Diane about a French word that is used often in English, the word terroir, which the dictionary defines as the complete natural environment in which a particular wine is produced, including factors such as the soil, topography, and climate. And it also means the characteristic taste and flavor imparted to a wine by the environment in which it's produced. So the idea is that the very specific weather conditions, soil content, and other environmental features of a region or even a particular hillside can be tasted or smelled in the agricultural products that come from the spot. If this is true for agriculture, is it also true for culture? Does land mark the songs and paintings made by the people there? Are the artists who allow the terroir of their home region to leave its marks on their work somehow more authentic? The German philosopher and theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher thought so. He believed that artworks are marked by their place of origin and that damage is done to them when they are torn from this home. In the early 19th century, he wrote, quote, Hence a work of art is really rooted in its own soil, its own environment. It loses its meaning when it is wrenched from this environment and enters into general circulation. It is like something that has been saved from the fire, but still bears the burn marks upon it, end quote. I asked Diane if she believes her work is marked by its place of origin. Yes. Um, the place not just being the physical place, but the culture that I was part of growing up. Um, I was raised Catholic, and I feel like that music from the ceremony of the Mass has a lot to do with, I mean, it was no intention, but I feel like be, that being some of my early music, it really went into this, there's kind of a, I'm just, you know, the Catholics are all into blood, blood and bones and relics of, relics of saints and colors, stained glass, and it, it's kind of hard to get away from, from that imagery, but um, I also feel like there's something American, generally American, about the music that I play and that I don't feel really bolted to any particular tradition. I didn't grow up with a strong, like, this is the folk music of, you know, I don't know, Bavaria or something. It's, I didn't grow up hearing anything too specific, so I am pretty much a melting pot of all the things that I've heard. And, what is folk music? I've never actually understood what folk music mm -hmm. is or what, what, count, what counts as folk music because I've heard some things that I, I wouldn't consider folk. Mm. Is it just that it has, I mean, it's made by and for the people. This is kind of my, but what isn't made by and for the people? That's really true. I think folk can be a really broad categorization. Um, some people use it for acoustic music, which I don't, 
I don't really feel that that's necessarily folk, but something about, yeah, about um, communicating something about the time that you're in and what's happening, what's happening around you, and using music as a form of, um, like, communicating that to people that are that are listening, and maybe. I don't know, maybe even having the, the form be pretty easy, easy to trade or copy so that others can sing those songs. But I, I don't have a strict definition of the word folk, and what you said I totally agree with, that if it's made by people for people, it's pretty hard to not in some way categorize that as folk. At one point, Diane used the word tone poem to describe her songs. I asked her what this meant. I am picking up on that phrase as something somebody described my music to me as on this tour. Uh, I played a certain song. He's like, "Wow, it's like it's like a tone poem," and I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure this is actually a, a whole format which I'm not familiar with. But the words make sense to me. Tone poem, um, based on just the words tone and poem. A lot of the writing I do, I try to keep the words very simple. That wasn't always true, but I think the longer I do it, I gravitate towards words that feel very simple and very good in the mouth, and also make a lot of resonance in the body. Words like home and bone, um, they come up a lot. Um, and the phrase, well, um, the vowel sound ah comes out a lot. I think that's a real sort of chest kind of heart resonating sound. So the way a song feels and sounds is really important to me. Um, I think lyrically they've gotten simpler. And so it is really about the tone of the words, the tone of like the information is kind of a color and a tone and it doesn't need to be super wordy uh, and sometimes it goes much deeper if it's not and maybe some of the traveling I've done in the southeast has affected this for me because there's a lot of traditional folk music happening there and it is often quite simple but totally relatable to so many different kinds of people even if it's not somebody that um, traditionally listens to, to folk music it's just uh, music about things that we all understand or can relate to on some level. And that's become very important to me as well. Not wanting to perform for like a niche group of folks, but wanting to be more broadly translable. As an artist who travels places that aren't mainly English speaking, um, I've started bringing in different instruments so that that can create different colors with the songs, even though they might be the same songs I used to play on guitar or something like this. But songs that, um, trying to relate information whether or not someone can speak English or whether or not they have a huge vocabulary or whether we have a common experience uh, as people like you know um, in terms of where we came from or you know, our place in life kind of thing. Blackberry Royal Seated by the window unplucked a dark juice promise he gazes unburst a full blackberry to turn in the mouth a trickling out that grazes the thirst. And what if I pick him like the king, who takes the chambermaid at night, as croppers share their cherished crop with locust swarm and early blight? And what if I roll him like the queen, who pulls her fruit from underneath and brings it round, displayed in white, to dynamite between her teeth? And what if I raise him like the prince, in tilling over peasant soil, conquering the space between the mud and seed to make it royal? 
But then he tricks me, like the knave, who hides away the fruit he's shown by stealing back the look he gave, the head and heart together grown. Ah, boy, you are so quiet, so lovely where you sit. Boy, you are so quiet, so lovely where you sit. We pick and pack a knapsack full of staghorn sumac, silver underbelly show as leaves in the wind blow. So we make a little picnic stop. In the red clover cover crop, as sun beat our bones down, buzzard drones wing around red August. It's hottest. The pale blue chicory's all gone with the rain. Red August. It's hottest. Came and blasted the grass that grew so fast. How does she walk on the side of this road where there's no shoulder there to hold her? It's so hot and dry on this road. Find your water, zombie daughter. Drivers flying blind on this road. Head for the ditches, scare up some witches. Green as it's gonna get. Summer isn't over yet. We make a little gang of three as she tumbles in her cup of tea. We leave behind the fallow field. For berries that the brambles yield, middle summer in the south, these berries ripen every mouth. So kissing leaves a bloody stain, burning August in the brain. Red August, it's hottest. The pale blue chicory's all gone with the rain. Red August. It's hottest. Came and blasted the grass that grew so fast. Diane wrote a song about her home state of Pennsylvania. The song's called Sylvania, and it's one of the few political songs that she's written. I'd like to read the lyrics, and then we'll have a listen. I grew up in Sylvania. There aren't so many woods now. How dare he lay his name upon that tract of land? The natives got on cool there. They felt no need to rule there. Who really gives a shit about some William Penn? Own your own Sylvania homestead, if that be your belief. You can claim you own it, though you bought it from a thief. Who might have been the boss a while, he never was the chief. Oh, I know. Founding fathers, I call you deadbeat dads. Leave us alone, leave everyone alone. We can work it out on our own. Sylvania's beautiful when the fall rolls around. There's gourds out in the fields and Indian corn. You can't eat them, though. Many half-songs sung up from the fields remind me how it was. Amazing. I, I really like this play that she does on the word amazing, which has the word maize in it, which means corn, and she's talking about corn in that last glimpse across the cornfields. Let's have a listen. 
from southeast Pennsylvania, Lancaster County. And uh, that song was something about, I mean, I moved away from Pennsylvania and I lived in New York City for a long time. But having moved away, I started to develop a real appreciation for the beauty of the countryside in Lancaster. And um, going back there, it just started stirring up a lot of feelings about land and, and, and uh, kind of home space home territory land and realizing uh, the things that make it challenging to live there property ownership um, a real revelation that I had in my mid-twenties like the first time I just went on a trip to kind of see a part of America was in North Carolina in the Blue Ridge Mountains and I went to a little hotel it's like a $15 a night hotel and uh, just kind of walked around. The idea was to spend time in the mountains. And I got up into the mountains and realized that every single place I was walking was owned and there were no trespassing signs and uh, you know, private property and there were kind of big estates up in the mountains that would have security cameras and security gates. And I just felt completely sad and uh, sort of shell-shocked about it. Something I knew, I guess I knew in some way that all the, the land and the property in this country is owned by somebody. But I had never really experienced it on a real somatic level of like walking or having a desire to walk in a particular place. And there were really threatening signs that it just wasn't allowed. Um, it, it really changed a lot for me when I realized that, that you just can't walk freely in, in the United States. This is something that um, we've noticed before in, in Europe, especially in Germany, for example, where it's not a given that a piece of land is owned. In fact, even if it is owned, you don't have this tendency to create a kind of barbed wire space that says, this is my plot of land. Yeah. But the, the assumption is that it belongs to everyone, and if you want to visit it, you're welcome to visit, but that, you know, on, on some kind of deed, my name is on this deed, but the land itself is open for use. And you'll find people who, can, who sometimes even camp right. on someone else's property which is almost inconceivable in the U.S., that you have all of these rights to actually shoot someone who mm -hmm. walks onto your plot of land. It's very aggressive, it's very violent, and I think that affects us as a culture in a really deep way. 
anxiety and depression and not even knowing why, but starting to unravel some of these things that make living here so difficult or so particular. Um, that land is just this thing we're born with. Beaches is, is a place I like to think about because beaches are just the rim of the land that meets the ocean. And to me, ocean and land are just basic human. It's, it's our territory. It's where we, it's, we're here on earth. And to realize that beaches are private or you have to pay to go to the beach. It's not even that it's trespassing all the time. You have to pay to go to the beach or things like this. Um, it's very stressful. Is there a particular landscape where you feel most at home? Something like this. This isn't too different from Pennsylvania. We're in um, Montague, Massachusetts, central Massachusetts right now, or western Mass. Um, wooded with streams, seasons, yeah. I really enjoy the southeast. Uh, the Appalachian Mountains and the Blue Ridge Mountains feel incredible to me. And again, there's sort of a, a moisture here that feels really healthy and seasons, water, and mist, and the way people tend to culturally develop around mountains, the kind of mountain cultures. I don't know if it's something that, because it's sort of hard to travel mountains, um, you know, all these little individual Appalachian cultures developed, and now we're all more unified with media than we were, but I still think that the mountain communities in the U.S. still have more of their own culture intact that's not been homogenized by media, and um, that feels very good to me, too, that it makes a lot of sense that you can travel 30 miles and there's a different culture happening, because it's a group of people or a family or several families that grew up over generations and made songs and passed on songs and had different language um, influences. Uh, but the southeast, that sort of ring of mountains that goes all the way up to Pennsylvania, um, that feels very, very like home to me. As a musician, Diane has traveled extensively around the U.S. and in Europe, and I asked her if these travels have changed the way she thinks about home. It gives me a fresh perspective when I return home. Sometimes a renewed ability or strategy for dealing with the way things function in my life in the U.S., but also, for better or for worse, a little bit of a feeling of being a bit of a stranger or like between different cultures. So maybe sometimes being a bit of a cultural translator, which is really fun as a musician that gets to travel around and <clears throat> tour and play for different people, uh, if I experience something in another place and it affects me, I can put that into a song or, you know, it's poetry, I can put that into like a tone poem, words, and relate that information to people in the U.S. as I'm traveling. And um, I think that's a really effective way to share things. Yeah, yeah. Where have you traveled outside the U.S.? Mostly just Europe. And the farthest east I've gone was uh, the Czech Republic, yeah. Which place was the least familiar to you, I guess, in comparison with the United States? Hmm. Italy and Spain, and outside of the, outside of the main cities. Like, uh, I can't even remember, might have been the Basque region in Spain that we were driving through this spring. And it sort of felt like the kind of place, if I stopped I, and... and and got out of the car and just started like walking up to people's houses that it would be a really different experience um, culturally and 
just it just felt different. It also was maybe the hottest, like more most south point that I went to. So the, the trees and the, the landscape were totally different, shrubby and kind of desert-like. Broad spirit comes back along the way, comes to me red black with a lot to say. She sit my tail down, pulled a wishbone wide. She read my head out along the way, way, the way, way, the way, the way.
I gave Diane a copy of Walt Whitman's Specimen Days, one of my most cherished books, as it contains a poetic record of life in the United States in the late 19th century. Whitman, an ardent observer of the natural world and the cultural one, somehow manages to talk of democracy in cosmic terms, never forgetting the connection between the stars on the flag and the real stars overhead that twinkle at us nightly. In this excerpt, Whitman, who was always at the periphery of the Civil War, helping wounded soldiers and bringing them paper with which to write letters home, describes what he sees on a battlefield under the moonlight. This entry is from May 12, 1863. It was the tug of Saturday evening, and through the night and Sunday morning, I wanted to make a special note of. It was largely in the woods and quite a general engagement. The night was very pleasant, at times the moon shining out full and clear, all nature so calm in itself. The early summer grass so rich and foliage of the trees. Yet there the battle raging, and many good fellows lying helpless, with new accessions to them, and every minute amid the rattle of muskets and crash of cannon, for there was an artillery contest too, the red lifeblood oozing out from heads or trunks or limbs upon that green and dew-cool grass. Patches of the woods take fire, and several of the wounded, unable to move, are consumed. Quite large spaces are swept over, burning the dead also. Some of the men have their hair and beards singed. Some burns on their faces and hands, others holes burnt in their clothing. The flashes of fire from the cannon, the quick flaring flames and smoke, and the immense roar, the musketry so general, the light nearly bright enough for each side to see the other. The crashing, tramping of the men, the yelling, close quarters, we hear the secesh yells, our men cheer loudly back, especially if Hooker is in sight. Hand-to-hand conflicts, each side stands up to it, brave, determined as demons. They often charge upon us. A thousand deeds are done worth to write newer, greater poems on. And still, the wood's on fire. Still, many are not only scorched. Too many, unable to move, are burned to death. What history, I say, can ever give, for who can know, the mad, determined tussle of the armies, in all their separate large and little squads, as this, each steeped from crown to toe in desperate mortal purports. Who know the conflict, hand to hand, the many conflicts in the dark, those shadowy tangled, flashing moonbeamed woods, the writhing groups and squads, the cries, the din, the cracking guns and pistols, the distant cannon, the cheers and calls and threats and awful music of the oaths, the indescribable mix, the officers' orders, persuasions, encouragements, the devils fully roused in human hearts, the strong shout, charge, men, charge, the flash of the naked sword and rolling flame and smoke, and still the broken, clear, and clouded heaven, and still the moonlight pouring silvery soft its radiant patches over all. Walt Whitman, like Diane Cluck, understood that the moon doesn't care about nation-building.
Thinking of you, Parajima hangs over me, over the road, so right and so leading me on. Dusk until dawn, Parajima. I wish I could stay close to your mouth. If I lived in your town, I'd be alright. Wax the wee, wax the tenderest, tenderest. Thinking of you. Politics have always felt really like a surface kind of thing for me. It's almost like the things that happen on top of everything else. So, and some people are really oriented towards understanding and following politics, but it's always been a real struggle for me to even understand them. A lot of them don't really make sense to me, a lot of politics that are occurring. And I think that's just a matter of like, we all have different brains and different strengths, things that we're, we understand. and somehow the way information comes to me, politics just don't stick. I feel like there's something more basic about people and communication and mutual agreements and uh, that is more compelling to me than the systems that are set up by others, often by a, like kind of an elite group of others on top of that. And to me, folk is more like what's happening under that. And a lot of folk songs are often about the sort of oppression that happens um, politically to the people that are kind of existing underneath the umbrella of what's happening over top of that politically and uh, I don't have a feeling that it's better or worse but I haven't been personally called to be very like overtly political with what I write 
somehow by being more general, I feel it can it can address lots of lots of things at once, or just more of a, a way of being that could potentially create healthier politics um, just by communicating in a way that's more direct or kind or thorough or grounded or somehow based in nature is somehow, I know that it could affect politics, which are kind of to me up here and this rest is like here. Uh, I, I think if something is confusing to me, like politics are often confusing, um, that I try to look at like what's, what's under it that can make it more understandable. And I would want to draw a distinction of not saying that I don't think it's that it has no importance, but for me it hasn't been where my attention's drawn. Like like you're saying, maybe there's something um, heavier that is where my attention is is on. And I say that because for a long time I had a self-consciousness about um, friends who would kind of chastise me for not reading the newspaper regularly, which I could spend time reading a newspaper and not really feel like I understood much about the world, but like I'd gotten this heavily filtered information that really um, was it was like learning something that just didn't feel like it had any grounding for me and so I would forget it all the time. So I just felt that, that it wasn't my realm and there are people that are very skilled in politics and, and maybe even that's, that's, where they, that's where their attention belongs. Uh, I just, yeah, I guess I don't get involved with them because it's not, it's clearly not my place. It just doesn't work for me. At the end of our conversation, I told Diane about a very famous speech by a French thinker named Ernest Renan. The speech is titled, What is a Nation? and he gave it in 1882 at the Sorbonne. In this speech, Renan formulates a theory of what we might call subjective nationality, suggesting that our belonging to a nation is a question of consent and should not be an automatic given based on the arbitrariness of language, race, or place that were ours at birth. Here's how he puts it. Quote, A nation is a soul, a spiritual principle, Two things which, properly speaking, are really one and the same constitute the soul, the spiritual principle. One is the past, the other is the present. One is the possession in common of a rich legacy of memories. The other is present consent, the desire to live together, the desire to continue to invest in the heritage that we have jointly received. These are the essential conditions of being a people, having common glories in the past and a will to continue them in the present having made great things together and wishing to make them again. One loves in proportion to the sacrifices that one has committed and the troubles that one has suffered. One loves the house that one has built and that one passes on. A nation is therefore a great solidarity, constituted by the feeling of sacrifices made and those that one is still disposed to make. It presupposes a past, but is reiterated in the present by a tangible fact, consent, the clearly expressed desire to continue a common life. In the scheme of ideas with which I present you, a nation has no more right than a king to say to a province, you belong to me, I am taking you. For us, a province is its inhabitants, and if anyone in this affair has the right to be consulted, it is the inhabitant. A nation never has a true interest in annexing or holding territory that does not wish to be annexed or held. The vow of nations is the sole legitimate criterion and that to which it is necessary to constantly return, end quote. I like Renan's idea very much, the idea that the nation is ours to choose, ours to take on as a project, an extension of ourselves in some sense. 
We are the stewards of it and may choose its shape. When it sours, no one can be blamed but ourselves. And when it's really good and we made this goodness happen, we get to really own the success. I asked Diane what she thought of Renan's idea about national consent or choice. I think it's a real personal choice, and I've definitely had escapist fantasies at some times in my life, but also a real feeling of that if I stay here and I have the strength to be what uh, makes sense to me in the world, that then you can change things too, um, that you can help to affect culture in the place that you were born and that even if it doesn't totally make sense to you. Um, but I think it's a real personal choice because if one feels really uh, like it's such a hard job that they're actually just under stress or, or pressure or just not enjoying life, that maybe there's a better choice, which might be to leave. Um, but for me, I felt pretty strongly that I like, I like being here, even though there's, it has its own challenges, but every place has its challenges. I kind of like uh, being an American and deciding that I'm going to stay here and um, help make things make sense here for me in the way that they do with, with friends and other artists and just other people in the world um, who want to communicate about those things. I've heard people talk often about their America in terms of it being a project. And I always kind of like this idea that it's a collective project and that we are all sort of responsible for bringing something to it. I mean, yeah. everyone has their own talent. But. I like that idea. I haven't heard that that particular word put on, put on it as a project, but I like that. It's a good one. So there we are, Diane Cluck, a fellow Sagittarius and lover of nature, a poet and musician who, in my opinion, has found a way to communicate something very essential about the United States through all of her work. She's been recording music since the early 2000s, and I encourage you to explore some of her work. Her website has her thoughts and drawings and more about her music. You can tell that place is of utmost importance to her. For each album she recorded, she gives small and golden details about its place of origin. For example, this is the description of Ovanil, an album that came out in 2004. She writes, most of this album was written during my stay at the Dorland Mountain Arts Colony in Temecula, California. I had an electricity-free cabin to myself, which housed a huge coffin-like grand piano, once played by the great Rachmaninoff. There was a wood stove, kerosene lamps, a manual typewriter, a high bed with an imposingly ornate wooden headboard, plenty of mice and stink bugs, and an integral 80-year-old caretaker named Robert. There was a small adobe library full of art books, a frog pond which grew sonorous by nightfall, a cell phone tower on the property. I made friends with the dark there. I'd lost my night vision after years of living in cities. Diane's currently working on what's called the Song of the Week project, in which she's releasing 24 songs one by one as she composes and records them. It's an amazing idea, always feeding her famished fans. So I'll close with one of these songs titled the power of allowing and receiving. And I'll be back in the near future with some more thoughts on America. As I lay bathing in the blazing mountain heat, no, there was nothing between the sun and me except a shadow of an incidental bird who kept on circling. To ensure I wasn't hurt, it hung in the sky.
See you.